0: Thank you for tuning into Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Um, My name's Ryan. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, just a joy to have you with us. If you're joining us online, welcome. If you're joining us online because you stayed up way too late watching the Padres win, welcome. Right on. Praise be to God, our prayers have been answered, okay? Um. Hey, so grateful that you're here today. We are jumping into a really, really challenging and often divisive topic today, and so I'm going to do my best to explain what I believe the scriptures teach, but I just want to acknowledge at the onset that there are people in our midst that will have differing views than I have, and that's completely okay. I hope I make a compelling point from the scriptures for you to consider, but if you walk away going, you know what, I I don't know that I necessarily agree with Ryan on all of that, that... That's okay, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can open there with me. In his most recent book entitled, Help Is Here, Max Licato wrote about an experience that he had just a few years ago. He recorded it like this. One of the most surprising gifts came to me at the age of 64. Over a period of several months, I asked Jesus for greater filling of his spirit. I requested that he not hold back that he pour out on me all the gifts he ever ordained me to have. And in the pre-dawn hours of a summer morning, I sat on our veranda and prayed, and I began to experience a heavenly prayer language. From deep within me, there welled a flow of utterances and staccato-like syllables. The feeling was one of delight and worship. The intimacy is continued each morning. Indeed, several times each day. I can always start it. I can always stop it, but I never want to. This gift does not make me more important or special. I don't glow in the dark or levitate about trees. In fact, I've chuckled at the possibility that the spirit helps me pray because my prayers are often so scattered. I welcome the assistance. Max Licato, just a few years ago, after being a pastor and follower of Jesus for decades upon decades upon decades, got the gift of tongues. What do we do with that? Uh, We're going to be studying this gift of tongues today, and I open with that story for a few reasons. Uh, Number one, um, if you're anything like me, my initial thought about studying the gift of tongues is, oh no, this is going to get a bit weird, right? And I think that Lakato helped normalize it a little bit for us, where we go, well, maybe that isn't all that strange. Secondly, I I love that Lakato said that this isn't something that makes a Christian some sort of spiritual elite, it's not a way that we divide between the haves and the have nots. Third, I think that he illustrated well what we've been learning over the last few weeks that we oftentimes think of spiritual gifts in a category that the Bible doesn't talk about them in, where it's like you get a spiritual gift upon salvation and then you just sort of assume that that's the only gift you're ever gonna have for your whole entire life as a follower of Jesus. And Lakato showed us that, well, maybe it doesn't work that way. And he's just right in line with what the apostle Paul has been teaching us. And then finally, I share that story with you because I'm not gonna have a lot of personal stories to share about speaking in tongues. I don't speak in tongues, Uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't believe in it. And it doesn't mean that I don't have convictions about what the scriptures teach about it. And I hope that in some way that makes me an even more reliable guide for some of the people in this space that are filled with doubt and questions and skepticism. So 1 Corinthians 14, are you ready? Just as a reminder, I want to remind you that 1 Corinthians 13 was all about one word and that word is what? Love. And so right in between this discussion about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we have a chapter reminding us how to steward every gift that we have and that is that we steward it by love, right? Paul began chapter 14 by writing and he said, pursue love. And earnestly desire, like well up with longing, boil over with hope, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Remember last week we talked all about this manifestation of prophecy if you didn't if you weren't here last week or uh, don't think you caught all of it go back and listen again I'd encourage you because now we're going to jump into the second gift that he highlights in chapter 14 and that's the gift of tongues verse 2 for one who speaks in a what tongue speaks not to men but to God For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So let's start with the most fundamental question. What in the world is tongues? In the Greek, it's the word glossa. Will you say that with me? glossa, and it could mean literally the tongue that is in your mouth, or it could mean a language that somebody speaks. Um, In the scriptures, it's important to sort of follow the contours of the way that tongues works in the New Testament. And so I think it's best to start where the scriptures start speaking about the spiritual gift of tongues, and that's in Acts chapter 2. So if you have a Bible open in front of you, I'd encourage you just flip over there with me. Because Jesus had commanded his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came because the Holy Spirit would be their power and he would be their helper. And so there's about 120 believers who were worshiping in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And Dr. Luke records for us, starting in verse four of Acts chapter two, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other, what? Tongues. Tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven, and at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So, I mean, you just have to imagine the scene, that you're in Jerusalem, that you don't speak Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek with some of the common languages of the day, and then you're there, you're gathered there, and you start to hear the gospel proclaimed in your own language. Immediately you go from thinking that you're an outsider to knowing this story's for me. That this message of Jesus is for me. People heard the gospel in their own language. Amazing, amazing. Now there are only two other accounts of the gift of tongues in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19. In both of those instances, the Holy Spirit falls on a group of believers for the very first time after they respond to the gospel, and they start speaking in tongues as a picture of the Holy Spirit's dwelling within them. But there's no mention of people hearing what they're saying and understanding it in their own language. There's also no interpretation of what was being said. It was just a sign that the Spirit had come. And so when we start to pick up this discussion of tongues in the book of 1 Corinthians, we start to see that it's evolving and changing just a bit in the early church. Because Paul wrote and said, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. That's different than Acts chapter 2, is it not? Because they were speaking to other people who needed to hear the gospel. And, and then he says, for no one understands him, he utters mysteries in the spirit. In Acts chapter 2, they were speaking intelligible languages, not mysteries in the spirit. It puts us in a little bit different space in the other two instances that we see in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19 also. Because in those cases, the spirit had come on a group of believers for the very first time. And tongues were a sign that the spirit was really indwelling them. Here... In 1 Corinthians 14, this is a group of people who've been following Jesus for a while and they're just speaking in tongues as a normal part of their worship gathering, which is exactly what Paul wanted to address with them. Verse three says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding encouragement and consolation. We talked about that last week. But the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. I'd always read this builds up himself as a negative. Like, we should read it the, the person who speaks in tongues is, is prideful, they just want to be seen. And I don't know if that's what Paul's saying at all. Let me ask you this Is it a good or a bad thing to build yourself up? <laughs> Not a trick question. It is, it's good. Right? Just drive by the gym and you will see people building themselves up all the time. Right? It's not a bad... If you had to choose between tearing yourself down and building yourself up, what should you do? Build yourself up! Come on now! Right? And so what I think Paul is saying is he's not saying that that's a negative thing in the least. He's just not saying that it's an appropriate thing to do while the church is all gathered together. So let's put these two, verse two and verse four together, and let's try to come up with a definition of what tongues is. In verse two, we saw that it's praying in the spirit to God. And in verse four, we see that it's a way that we can build ourselves up. And I think what Paul is teaching the church in Corinth is that tongues can be a form of prayer in the spirit that gives strength to the soul. A form of prayer in the spirit that gives strength to the to the soul. In fact, I would suggest to you that praying or speaking in tongues is part of a much larger category, praying in the spirit. In fact, in verse 14, if you just go down just a little bit, Paul will write, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Did you know that your spirit can pray? Did you know that it's, a, that it's possible to engage with God on a spirit-to-spirit level? The idea of praying in the Spirit is actually quite biblical, even though it's often ignored. In Jude, verse 20, listen to what the author writes. He said, but you, beloved, building yourselves up. Does that sound familiar? Right. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. See, see, Jude's going to mention the idea of praying in the spirit. It's very similar, but he doesn't mention tongues in this passage. Interesting. Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, would write, praying at all times in in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's really interesting that praying in the Spirit is a much larger category in the Scriptures than we often give it credit for, and praying in tongues, it seems, is one of the ways that we can pray in the Spirit. Paul will continue, and he writes this in verse 5. He says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. Just pausing for dramatic effect. (laughs) But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, remember, this chapter is a compare and contrast between prophecy and tongues. Each has its place, but they don't have an equal place in the gathered church. See, during the gathering, Paul says, I, prepare, I would prefer to prophesy. Why? Well, because that helps everybody. It encourages, it builds up, it brings hope, right? But he says, but during a gathering, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna lean into tongues as much because, well, that could just be confusing and it wouldn't be beneficial to everybody unless somebody interprets. That's his point. And I think our point is that walking in the spirit allows us to enjoy freedom and intimacy. In fact, I believe that for every single person, there's greater intimacy, greater depth of relationship that the father wants to draw you and me and us into. There is more. There's freedom and intimacy. But walking in the spirit requires discernment in community. That everything you do in your private life with Jesus does not need to be rolled into our public gathering together. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? There's some things that are just for you and for Him. And it seems like Paul is putting tongues more in that category that is just He and the Lord. It's a way that His Spirit is built up. And he's gonna go on to make a case for why he doesn't think that tongues is the best way to um, manifest the spirit in the gathered church community. Listen to what he said, verse six. He said, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I, what? (laughs) Benefit. That's what this is all about. How do I bring benefit? How will I benefit unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching. I don't think you have to read too much between the lines to see that the Corinthian church had some expectation that Paul would come and speak in tongues. And if he didn't, he would be some sort of lower class citizen in the kingdom of God. It appears that they viewed tongues as some sort of elevated level of spirituality or that it legitimized a walk with Jesus in a way that Paul says, I'm just not gonna play that game. When I'm with you gathered as a church, my goal is is going to be to bring something that's beneficial for everyone, for everyone. And communal benefit requires common understanding. That's what Paul's saying. That you can't benefit if you don't understand what's going on. And from there, what he's going to do is he's going to unpack and he's going to give three illustrations of how we all know that this is true. Verse seven, he wrote, And even if lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinctive notes, how will anyone know what's played? So he uses the illustration of a musical instrument. Uh, We've got a number of instruments up here on stage. And other than the guitar, if I were to get behind one of those musical instruments and try to play them, it would be chaos. You would wanna leave almost immediately. It would be like when my kids walk into my in-law's house, they have a a piano sitting there and they'll go down and they'll sit at the piano and they'll start to play. They don't know how to play the piano. They'll just start pounding notes and I just start praying that Jesus takes me home, right? Right? Uh, This is actual footage from them doing that, right? (laughs) So that, and Paul says like, that's sort of what tongues in a gathering can feel like. It's, it's noise, but it's not building up and it's not beneficial. His second illustration is, and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So in the ancient world, they would use trumpets or bugles to call soldiers into battle. And what Paul's saying is if you don't play the right notes, you're not going to get the right message across. It's not going to have any sort of benefit. It's not going to get anybody ready for battle. And his point is that praying in tongues in a service when it's uninterpreted does the exact same thing. It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't get anybody ready. It doesn't help anybody draw closer to Jesus. It's, if it's not understood, it's confusing or at worst, maybe even dangerous. And he goes on and in verse nine, he writes, so with yourselves, with your tongue, you utter speech that's not intelligible. How will anyone know what's said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. How many of you have gone to a church service um, in a different country where they spoke a different language? Right? It's a great experience. I can remember being in uh, Corte Bois, Africa, where they spoke French. And um, man, I absolutely loved worshiping with the African congregation. There was a conga line at one point in time, praise be to God. Like, I was in on the conga line, but I had no idea what we were singing, right? Praying and I had no idea what we were praying. But when I got up to teach, I had a translator because it was important that people what? Understood me, right? Understood what I was teaching. And I think Paul's point is the same, is that without an interpreter, people can't benefit from what's being said. And so he makes this point, and he sort of throws down the gauntlet, and he says, So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I love this because um, in Corinth, it seemed as though the church had been stewarding their spiritual gifts in a way that was outside of God's design. And what Paul does not come to them and say is, just turn down your desire. Like, just stop it altogether. This is getting out of control. This is chaotic. This is weird. Stop it. Stop it. He doesn't say that. He says, since you're eager for the spirit, make sure you channel your eagerness into things that will help build everybody up. That's his call. And I think it's a good reminder for us as well. But it does leave us with some questions potentially about the place of tongues. I mean, I mean, we might even be tempted to just write them off altogether. But Paul's way ahead of us. And he's gonna cut us off at the past there and go, don't go there. Don't go there, verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. See, the real issue in the church isn't speaking in tongues, it's uninterpreted tongues. And he goes on and he starts to give us a more robust picture and definition of what tongues actually is. He said, verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my, what? My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, lest we start to think that Paul is sort of poo-pooing tongues a little bit and going, yeah, your mind isn't engaged, therefore you don't need it. He says, what am I to do? (laughs) I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. So he says, just because my mind is engaged, but it's uh, unfruitful, doesn't mean I'm going to write this off. Doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing it. He goes, actually, what it means is I'm going to pray with my mind and my spirit. And I don't know if he caught this, but he threw down the gauntlet and he says, not only does he speak in tongues, but he also sings in tongues, right? Right? So he takes it to the next degree. But he's claiming, I'm going to do both of those things. Because friends, we are multifaceted beings. You know that, right? Body, soul, mind, spirit. And I think sometimes we only engage with God with our mind. And for some of us, maybe our mind is full of information. Mind is full of truth about who God is and what God's like, but our spirit and our soul might be on life support. And maybe just maybe there's an invitation to come deeper. See, communion with God is experienced in both mind and spirit, according to Paul. So what is prayer with your mind? What does that mean? I, I think it means that we come to God with an idea or an agenda and I don't mean that in a pejorative like I want I want to come to God and say God I want to pray for these people. It means we come to God and we confess. It means we come to God and we pray in a way where we control what's said and we do our best to respond to the way that God responds to us. That's what praying with our mind is. What's praying with our spirit then? <laughs> what's praying with our spirit? See, because praying with our spirit is not devoid of our mind, it's just not controlled by our mind. That's really important. It's an elevated level of communion that allows us to receive strength from God as we rest in him. It's the kind of prayer where we approach God in humility and let God have control. It's the kind of prayer where we realize what St. Augustine wrote, where he said that God is closer to me than I am to myself. I think that's the kind of prayer that's praying with our spirit. It's the kind of prayer that Paul referred to in Romans chapter 8 when he said, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought Time out. Have you ever been just so broken, so laid out, so at the end of your rope? Like maybe there was a child that just that wandered away, or a financial situation that you didn't know, have any idea how it was going to be made right, or you were just feeling just emotionally wrung out and at the end of your rope. Have you ever been at the place where you didn't have words to pray? anyone right yeah i i have i have and have in those moments have you ever just sat down and sensed that the spirit was stirring even in the midst of your lack of words anybody yes. this is what paul's talking about here and he's claiming in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, he's claiming that tongues is one way that we engage with God spirit to spirit, but I would suggest to you that it's not the only way. The point is, how do we get to that place of communing with God spirit to spirit, not God, here's what I want to bring to your plate. Here's how I'd like you to move. Here are the ideas that I have and the ways that you could resolve this. It's just coming to God with our full and whole self, submitting and surrendering to him and experiencing sweet communion spirit to spirit. But listen to his reasoning on why he chooses to pray with his mind while the church is gathered together. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying, right? That you need to know what people are saying in order to say amen, amen, amen. Hey amen. You're dialed in right on, okay? <laughs> For you may be giving thanks well enough. But he's like, what you said may have been finding good, but the other person's not being built up. It's just helping you. And so he claims that praying in a tongue or praying in the spirit, that he might get done and feel good. Like he's communed with God, but nobody else is able to add their amen to what he said. And part of what we do together, friends, Our hope and prayer is always that you would experience the living God, but also our prayer is that through each other, we might experience God's presence as well. That there's something that happens when we collectively add our amen, or when we sing out together, or when we praise together, there's something that happens. And as important as it is for us to commune spirit to spirit with God, it's also essential that we commune spirit to spirit with each other, and that requires that we understand each other. That's what Paul's saying. Now, um, most people point out that Paul has prohibited speaking in tongues in church services, at at least enough at this point in 1 Corinthians 14, that the church in Corinth is probably assuming that he doesn't speak in tongues. And Paul's like, hold my Bible, here we go. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues, what, (laughs) more than all of you, bomb dropped, Right? Just because they've never seen him do it doesn't mean he doesn't do it. He prays and sings in tongues in private as a way to strengthen himself. It's set in contrast to what he brings to the gathered church. Verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. See, Paul's philosophy is that when we're together, what we do should benefit all. Even people who don't yet know Jesus. It should be a benefit to them in some way. And here's the deal, friends. There are ways that God moves in your life that are just for you. They're just for you. Not meant to be shared with everybody else. And then there are things that he will give you that are designed to encourage others in the body. And it takes wisdom and discernment to know the difference. And then Paul drives the point home for the people in the back, okay? He's just gonna say the same thing again, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So he's pushing them to reconsider how they view the function of tongues in their gathering. Verse 21, in the law, it is written. And here he's gonna reference Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. By people of strange tongues and by strange lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, um, there's a background to this Uh, word in Isaiah. And so let me give you the very short version of it. The prophets had come to the nation of Israel, calling them to repent of their idolatry. They refused to listen and they were taken off into exile. And when they were in exile, they were strangers in a strange land. And as they walked down the streets in Babylon, they heard people speaking Chaldean and they had absolutely no clue what anyone was saying. And so just like the people in their gatherings (laughs) when they were speaking tongues, the Israelites couldn't understand what was going on in Babylon. And Paul's saying, well, that's sort of how people feel when they come into your gatherings and everybody's speaking in tongues without an interpretation. So he goes on to write in verse 22 and he says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. So I need to apologize here Because a few weeks ago, I referenced this verse and I said, see, tongues are used as an evangelistic tool. And I want to qualify that. In Acts chapter 2, we see tongues being used as an evangelistic tool. People heard the gospel in their own language. But that is not the point that Paul is making in this passage and in this text. He's saying that the unbelievers who were coming into the gathering in Corinth felt the same way that the Israelites felt when they were walking the streets of Babylon. They were on the outside of what God was doing. It was a sign to them, but it was not a positive sign. <laughs> Signs can be both negative and positive. The plagues that, were, that Egypt was stricken with were positive or negative? Negative, right? It can be either positive or negative. And we see the principle that while Paul didn't want the church to cater to unbelievers and making everything about them, he wanted their services and gathering times to be understandable by all who entered. And he says... In verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will say that you are out of your minds. Right? Like if we were all speaking in tongues and somebody walked off the streets into here saying, I need me some Jesus, right? They walked into our gathering, everyone's speaking in tongues. They would go, I'm gonna go look for him somewhere else. Thank you very much. Right? Right? Yeah, so he says, like, don't make it weird for them. Don't make it strange for them. And his point in verses 25, 24 and 25 is that prophecy is way more helpful for an unbeliever because it lays their heart bare and it brings them face to face with God so that they can respond to God in worship. And so to that end, Paul wants to give a few instructions about how to steward the manifestations of the Spirit during the gathering. Here's what he said, verse 26. Verse 26. What then brothers, when you come together, each one, everyone say each one. Each one one has a hymn or a lesson or teaching, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church And speak to himself and to God. Now notice, this each one is really, really important. Because as we pointed out last week, the people who came to church in Corinth were expecting not just to receive, but also to impart. Some sort of song, some teaching, some tongue, some interpretation, some way to build up the body. And I don't think Paul's saying, okay, like everybody needs to get in a line and now it's your turn to bring whatever you've brought. I don't think that that's it at all. I think he's instructing the Corinthians to eagerly expect to receive and to respond to one another in worship. That's what he's saying. But he's saying that in order to do that well, we've got to do our work to preserve order. Amen? Yeah. See, because order must be preserved so that gatherings are profitable. (laughs) Because if it's chaotic, it benefits precisely no one. And I want you to notice the ground rules that Paul laid down for what that would look like in the church in Corinth. Here's what he said. When people are speaking in tongues, two or three tongues per gathering, he said, not everyone all at once so that there isn't chaos and that there must be an interpretation if somebody speaks in a tongue during a gathering. Now, I wanna point out that all of these imply that the person who's speaking in tongues is in complete control. They're not rolling around on the ground. They're not barking. They're not like all the other th- images that you have in your mind of what this could turn into. Paul's going, no, no, no. They're in, they're in complete control and they are able to determine and use discernment about when and where their speaking should take place. And Paul's saying that's really important. Otherwise, it's not beneficial for anybody here. And anybody who walks in off the street is gonna think we're a bunch of weirdos, right? So he makes that point about tongues. He goes on to make the same point about prophecy. There needs to be some order so that prophets aren't prophesying on top of one another. And then finally, in verse 33, he says this. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I love that. He wants people to understand the gospel. As in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, really quick, um, there's a lot of debate in scholarly circles, even now still, about what law Paul is referring to, because there's no law in the old covenant that he's referring to. Most people think that it's a law in the Roman culture at the time that was fairly well known. And he's saying it's not a bad law to keep in effect even in the church. So he says the women should keep silent in the churches. If there's verse 34, anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. And oh, would you look at the time? It's it's time time to call it. So so sorry. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, let's be honest. It's passages like these that we read, and oftentimes people will take them out of context. They'll just pull them right out, and they'll say, see, Paul's a male chauvinist. Um, he's against or anti Women. And I don't think that that's at all what Paul is saying if we actually read him in the context, not only of this passage, but in the context of the letter of 1 Corinthians. So let's first identify what Paul is not, cannot be saying. First, we were just told that when we come together, each one, everybody say each one, each one has a hymn or a lesson, or teaching, revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let's just acknowledge that all of those things require talking, right? That you can't be silent and do those things, right? But if you go back and read through chapter 11, what you'll see is that Paul presumes and even encourages that women are a part of the public worship gatherings and they play roles of both prayer and prophecy. They just need to have their heads covered while they're doing it. So it's culturally appropriate, but women were a distinct part of the worship gatherings in ancient Corinth. So we know that Paul is not telling women to remain silent at all times because he's already said that they can teach, prophesy, and pray during the worship gatherings. So then what in the world is Paul talking about? What is his admonition to keep silent? Well, it's really interesting, because this is the third time that he's told a group of people to keep silent. I don't know if he caught that. The first time was that people who were speaking in tongues without an interpretation should keep silent. right The second time was that people who were prophesying needed to pay attention to other people who were prophesying, and if someone was prophesying, when they wanted to prophesy, they should be silent. And so it's in line with two other admonitions to groups of people to keep silent in order to preserve order in the worship gathering. Because God is a God of peace, not confusion. So it seems to me that in Corinth, there was a group of women who were a part of their worship gatherings who were making the church chaotic, asking questions out of turn, stirring the pot, causing chaos, similar to somebody Uh, speaking in the tongue without an interpretation or prophesying on top of somebody else. And so Paul tells them, ask your husband your questions at home, as if to say, not during the worship gathering, because that's making things absolutely chaotic. At Emmanuel Faith, um, we have never, to my knowledge, interpreted or applied this passage to say that women must be silent in church, always, always, nor have we used it to limit the roles of women in our public worship gatherings. Historically, we've had women serving in a number of different roles in our worship service. This passage, it seems, is far more about preserving order in the gathering than it is about limiting roles. So he ends, Paul does, with his summary. And here's what he says. So my brothers earnestly desire prophecy. Like boil over for a, with a longing for it. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. He's already made a bunch of qualifications of, of how that looks in the gathering, but he says, don't forbid it. Don't just write it off because it might get strange or weird, right? Like lean into the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Discern what God's up to. But in all things, all things should be done decently and in order. And I would, I would affirm what Paul teaches as uh, something that applies directly to us. Let's continue to seek the spirit, friends. Let's ask God for more. Let's ask God that he pour out his spirit on us in unique and fresh ways. Let's go to him. Let's not limit what God would want to do, but let's also preserve the order. Just like for the women in Corinth, I would say, if you have a question, now's not the right time. I'll be up front after and would love to answer any questions for you. But I only have until 5 o'clock, which is when our next service starts. So, yeah, we're not going to come up and let somebody pound on the piano. But we're also not going to stop singing. Amen? Amen. See, in private, we have intimacy with God. We get to enjoy him in new and fresh ways. And in public, we practice discernment for everybody's benefit. And here's the invitation that's laid out for us. To pursue the spirit passionately and to love each other deeply. I don't know about you, but um, I I just got to be honest. I've been on a journey over the last few weeks. I hope that's okay with you. I hope you've been on a little bit of a journey too. Because friends, as a church, I never want us to get to the place where we are religious but not spiritual. That would be devastating. I don't want us to drink decaf when the real thing's available. Come on. And I don't want us to get domesticated off to the side when there is a feast to be had. And my sense is, my sense is that we are a little bit like Lucy who is standing at the threshold of the wardrobe. <laughs> and then maybe you just, maybe God's going, open it. You have no idea. You have no idea what I wanna do in your midst. Open it, open it. And I've been wondering if maybe, just maybe we two could turn that knob and walk into Narnia as if to say that we could walk in the spirit in new and fresh ways. Let's pray just like Max Lucado prayed. God, don't hold back anything that you want to give us. Pour out all of the gifts that you've ordained for us to have. Amen? Let's pray, let's pray. Would you just take a moment and I wanna invite you to pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Yeah, give us wisdom. Move in our midst. If you'd like, pray out loud, come Holy Spirit, and just invite you to lift it up before Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way. Come, Holy Spirit, and draw us deeper into union with Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, pour out the love of God into our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, and awaken us. Stir afresh, we pray, in Jesus' name.